welcome to the podcast, The Common Bridge with Richard Helpy. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors, but with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. My name is Brian Kruger, and from time to time, I'll be the moderator and host of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Common Bridge. We've got a special treat today. We have on the line from Arizona, Bill Michaels. Uh, Bill is an expert in supply chain. He's very well versed in uh, North American and uh, North American to European trade. Um, the Common Bridge, of course, uh, is not about the partisan political divide, but what's really going on with policy. Um, and we're, we're pleased to have uh, Bill Michaels with us. W Bill, welcome to the Common Bridge. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Richard. I'm glad to be here. Um, Bill, you've uh, been a, a leading expert on supply chain and logistics. Uh, you uh, are a published author. I know you're very, very busy on the speaking circuit. You've formed some very significant trade associations, and your clients include some of the largest companies in the world. And I think that gives you a direct understanding of trade and international trade and its effects on companies, employees, and uh, frankly, our life here in the United States. Um, Bill, can you give us a, just a kind of a quick recap of your career? And um, I know that's a challenge given that it's been uh, lengthy and in depth. No, no, I'd be happy to. You know, I, I started my career in, in supply chain as a trainee, and actually that, at that time it was at uh, Smith Corona Typewriters, and I worked in every area of, uh, of supply chain, in planning area, the purchasing area, logistics area, warehousing, and, and, and I, I worked there for uh, about, about 12 years and uh, led the company and eventually ended up as director of R&D planning uh, and making everything come out of R&D and get manufactured and out the door. And so we led the company through uh, electromechanical to electronics, and then we led it on to uh, 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 printers. And uh, at one point, the management came in and said, no one's ever going to want a desktop computer. And they exited the printer market and went back into typewriters. So I went into the, the uh, paper industry, and I worked in the uh, paper industry for a couple of years uh, and uh, learned a lot about the paper industry. But... Um, moved on, and I was recruited back into the parent company of, of the typewriter business to trade commodities in the food business, which was uh, was an exciting time. After that, I went on to uh, Campbell Soup for a period of time. Then I started a consulting company uh, and grew the company for 20 years and made it one of the lich, the leading niche uh, consultancies in uh, in purchasing and supply chain. Uh, and then I sold the company to the Institute for Supply Management, uh, and I, I left, and then I'm working now with the Chartered Institute for Purchasing and Supply. That's fantastic. Bill, if you look at a North American trade, um, U.S., Canada, Mexico, what are some of the most important things that everyone should understand about these trading relationships? If, if you think about the history, the way the, the North American uh, trade relationships formed, we were watching Europe pull together its culture, and it was pulling together uh, free trade across all the units of Europe. So we were seeing uh, common common trade, la uh, borderless uh, borderless trade. We were seeing people free to move between borders. They were going to one common currency, and 
looking at the uh, the Asians coming in in a trading block as well. So in the early days of of trade, of free trade, um, North America decided it needed to get together uh, so that it compete it could compete with a European block and a and a and a Asian block. What what were some of the objectives of the, those early deals? Where does uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement NAFTA fit into that? And and what were some of the obstacles encountered? I think I think some of the objectives was to get a get a common block for trading in, in the Americas, in North America particularly, um, that could compete with the rest of the world. Um, I think some of the some of the blocks were that when it was established, it, it really wasn't uh, free trade among the nations. Canada became the big loser, and it, it was kind of like a big sucking sound down to low cost uh, areas of Mexico. I remember uh, Ross Perot predicting that in 1992, um, and also people on this side of the border saying that uh, we would be importing unfair labor practices and unsafe trucks from Mexico into the United States. How much of that was actually true? Well, I think on the Canadian part, I mean, Canada lost uh, a lot, some of its automotive business, a lot of its agricultural business. And uh, and became very very tough on on NAFTA. In fact, you know, I experienced it with my consulting company, where two of my consultants were deported. They were deported because they didn't have their credentials, which was required under NAFTA. And what the what the Canadians considered credentials were uh, university degrees. So they had to come back, get their degrees, get a letter, show the contract, and then go back up to Canada. And and they were applying reapplying for their work permit that they had a legal work permit, and they were reapplying, and and they got deported. Um, and my own business was classified a resident business without a residence, and there was really uh, a lot of um, resistance to. Uh, some of the trading policies and, and labor coming out of the United States to Canada. And Mexico Me Mexico did really, really well in terms of its low labor. A lot of industries started to move to Mexico. But most most companies were actually moving to Asia to, to follow the low-cost labor uh, opportunities in Asia, particularly in China. And so the automotive group decided they were going to move to China, and then uh, the, the appliance industry moved to China. Um, a lot of the other industries as well moved to China. So... Um, so it kind of deflated what we were doing in, in, in North America. So Canada was the big loser. U.S. was losing business to both Asia and Mexico. And Mexico was the, where a lot of our, at least our North American trade, uh, was, was starting, to, starting to pick up. Is it true that Canada is the number one trading partner with the United States? You, you know, I don't I don't know if it's the number one trading partner. I think China may be the number one uh, trading partner. Um, but but it, it certainly it, it, a lot of good lumber, lumber, particularly automotive components, uh, um, not not necessarily agricultural components. You know, one of the things that that was bad about NAFTA and, and 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 really irritated a lot of the trading partners we had in North America is the fact that it it is very um protectionist on agriculture. So we still have quotas on sugar. We still have um, uh, regulation on milk pricing. So milk and sugar are are definitely um, um, regulated by the government. And that was one of the things that uh, Canada wanted corrected in the new agreement. Did they get that, what they were after? Yeah, I, I, uh, we, we increased the quotas allowed, allowed to come in. 
But back in the early days when, when I was working in the food industry, um, uh, the world sugar price was around 15 cents and the, um, and the U.S. price was around 45 cents, which really forced uh, a lot of people in the industry to go to fructose, which is a corn-based sweetener, uh, just to avoid that. Uh, some, some of the things that we did in the food business, we would reformulate uh, for a full product in Canada and then bring the product in under the quota. So milk and milk and uh, and sugar were really irritating uh, the Canadians, and and that's been opened up quite a bit in terms of the quota that we get. How did how did the NAFTA agreement affect the automotive industry? <clears throat> well, it didn't. It really didn't have a, a lot of impact in terms of uh, in 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 uh, trade agreement area in the North American bloc in terms of controlling. Um, the labor content. So um, the, the materials could come in from Europe and, and Asia and everywhere else. Under this new agreement, to, uh, 75 percent. We changed the labor, the content, the amount of in-country content to, from 62.5 to 75 percent. And in labor, 40 uh, percent in-country has to has to be uh, cars. Cars have to have 40 percent local content from the, uh, North America. And 45% on life truck on light trucks. So um, that that's that's some of it. The other thing that was was a problem was in 1962 they declared automotive the automotive industry a national security threat, and uh, that was that was relieved. A lot of that that relief has happened in the new contract as well. The new U.S. Canada Mexico agreement. Um, it was a bipartisan effort. It uh, came through the Democratic House. It was endorsed by Democrat senators and, of course, signed into law by President Trump. Um, any insight to why that was able to uh, go above and beyond or through our partisan politics? Was there something in it for everyone, or how were they looking at it? I think part of it is, if you look at the European Union, uh, it's not quite as strong as it was with the exit of uh, the Great Britain from from the uh, trade bloc. It, it opens up more opportunity for North America to have a stronger trade bloc. So I think if you're looking at the global trade position, um, China, the, the tariffs on China have been, had an impact. The, the Brexit has had a big impact, not just on Great Britain, but on uh, on the European Union. And I understand that Great Britain now is working with the U.S. on a um, trade trade negotiation, and I think that that will that will probably be favorable for the two countries as well. So it's a time the time might be right. Um, and and when we looked at the things that we weren't weren't doing in NAFTA, um, it was it was the right time for that kind of agreement. There's a big change. We got this digital disruption program. We've got problems with you know um, people chasing low cost labor. We've got the tariffs have definitely caused some issues for. The government to look at um, one of one of the things is that um, under under the tariffs, well, we're starting to see different supply chain strategies develop. So there's a strategy that says if you have something in China based on the tariffs, you want to you want to move it. You know, so if it's something like a, a simple stamping tool or a uh, plastic molding tool, it's easy to move. You can go to Vietnam, Thailand, Taiwan. If it's much more complicated. You actually can look at options to reshore things, bring it back into the United States. But those things that get reshored are not are not the not not the same as when they left. So when you look at GE, 
uh, reshored all of its appliances before it sold them to hire in China. Um, they put $1.9 in the factory to automate it. So a lot of the things that come back are automated. And when you automate, you actually offset this, this chase for low-cost labor. And I think the chase for low-cost labor is getting harder and harder. So China is developing a middle class, and that's, that's forcing uh, wages and prices to go up in China. And, and the next, the next low-cost country people are looking at are, is Africa, but there's not really an infrastructure. So I think with the you know, implementation of manufacturing 4.0 and the digital age, um, we, we actually won't be chasing low-cost labor over time. And if you think about the robotics, they don't get tired. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they produce higher quality products. So um, I think there is a disruption happening across the, the, trade, the trading world. Bill, that's fascinating. Let me play that back for you a little bit and make sure I've got this right, and, and please correct me where uh, I'm not. So in the example of GE, they offshored much of their manufacturing for their appliances. Um, yes. Then they brought them back into the United States, reshored them, but instead of going yes. and employing hundreds of uh, assembly workers, they instead automated the plant, and so the employees... I guess would be more engineers and electricians and higher skilled labor uh, to, to build the product. Software. Yeah, software programmers for sure. Um, you know, people that can manage and maintain the robots. Uh, but but yeah, I think that that's, that's exactly what we're gonna see. We're gonna continue to see it. We look at the plastics industry, they want lights out factories. Even, even if you look at the home building industry, which I'm, I'm looking in, I work, work some in home building, they, they're actually thinking about panelization of the walls because the labor uh, force in the United States uh, for contractors and laborers it, it isn't going to be there in the future. People don't want to go into the, ele uh, the electrician business. They don't want to go into the carpentry business. So people are really thinking about how to, how to retool their businesses for the future. And I've uh, spent some time recently with... Uh people that are using 3D printing to make houses. Um, at the moment, it needs to uh, be done economically. To make it done economically, it's gotta be done um, on a whole subdivision level. You couldn't just go in and infill uh, you know, Royal Oak, Michigan uh, with a new yeah. home that way. Right. Um, but it's, it's interesting that um, you know, in our political climate, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Yang, one of the uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination, he said, your competition's not China, it's not Vietnam, it's not Mexico, it's really about robots. And when I think about the implications for the society, we, we have spent time on what education policy should be because we need people that are um, capable um, at the uh, software and, and design and, and uh, physics level. Um, uh, uh, to uh, maintain these uh, wonderful manufacturing uh, processes. And we've also got to figure out a way to distribute spending power if, um, if labor is going to be you know, commoditized. You know, when you start thinking about it, I, I think when we look at the, the millennials and the, the change from baby boomers, we really are moving into a, a place where um, th things have to change in terms of the way we, we do things. You, you mentioned the home building side. I do know that they were able to build and, and 3D print a, a, an entire HVAC system, um, which is pretty functional. So I, I think that that's good. The way we look at everything is going to change. I, I want to mention one or two thing, things else that affect trade. When we, when we looked at you know the, the disaster we had in Japan, 
and the uh, crisis that we had when we had the tsunami and, and the components went out or when we had the floods in Thailand and we lost some of the memory, memory chips and things like that. Um, you know, people started rethinking their strategy. So, so should they have uh, smaller manufacturing plants that are duplicated, duplicated close to the markets that they serve? Or should they have one big global uh, overseas plant that's shipping stuff all over and highly at risk? So I think there's that risk management as a, a strategy. And the other thing that comes into play now is the um, social, uh, corporate social responsibility. So you've got political, when you're looking at your market, looking at where you're going to place your, your things, you have to look at the market in terms of political, you know, what happened in Argentina where people lost all their plants, the social aspect, because you have forced labor and bribery in, in many of the supply chains, what's the environmental impact, because that's what millennials are looking at, and they're going to be the new consumer, uh, economic uh, impact and technological impact. So you have to look at all those things and build a strategy that's going to accommodate, one, what market do you want to be in, what kind of, what kind of uh, environment do you want to be in, and then how are you going to do it? So I think people are rethinking the whole supply chain strategy. You know, I was at a company that not too long ago, and they were looking. They were looking typically like other people do, and they were looking at low cost labor. And they're they like, "Hey, let's move, let's move something to um, the, East, the Eastern Bloc. We can get a better peace price." But what they didn't account for is the fact that they've got longer transit time on the uh, on the ocean. They're extending the supply chain, so they have to have longer inventory. They have to have more cash to manage that inventory. They have duty and freight and insurance that they have to look at. And so some people made a lot of these decisions in the old days uh, not looking at the total cost of ownership. They looked at just the piece price and the ability to get it in. But, you know, you got a lengthened supply chain. you got to tie up more cash and inventory. you got freight duty, and you got more risk. You know, in, in my early days, I remember building a mold, and it took 20, 26 weeks to build a mold. And uh, the ship went in. It, it got into some rough seas, and they cut my container loose and Dropped it overboard. Oh, no. Of, yeah. So you start all over again. That was on a new product in the typewriter business. So you, 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 have, to, you have to really consider the risk and, and opportunity. So I think, uh, I think today in the supply chain, it's not just about peace price. It's not just about where do you, where do you go to. You know, it's more about uh, best landed cost, total cost of ownership, serving the markets with the products you need, maybe duplicating some small facilities. All of that has to be considered. This is fascinating. With your longitudinal view, um, you know, you mentioned 1962 and the protection of the automotive industry. And, um, you know, my view of the early 1960s was a real unique time in history uh, in that, you know, following World War II, the only modern factories standing in the world were in the United States. Uh, consumers had money in their hands uh, because they had been working during the war and things were rationed. Um, you know, the GIs had come home, and really until the Japanese started competing with us for cars 20 years later, um, the, the 1960s was just an unprecedented boom time for the United States of America, not to mention the fact that we could trade with both oceans and that we have more arable land, uh, you know, while China may operate, may have more land mass, uh, much of it you can't farm. And, right. and so we had labor policies and trade policies that were spawned from that unique position. And frankly, I, I hear 
uh, politicians trying to take us back to that labor model. And yet I hear you saying, well, hey, wait a minute, you've got to change everything about the, lo the location of your plants to what kind of machines you're going to put in them, to what kind of labor. And it seems like we need to yeah. be aiming at 2030, 2040, 2060, not looking backwards and thinking somehow we're going to drag 1960 into the future. Am I reading well, that right? You make an interesting point, but I think the reason why is because if you think of the implication where you have automation and robotics driving your uh, supply chain, then you really have a social problem with people that are not working. So I think when you think if you're a politician, you know, you're very, very concerned about the, the impact of the social uh, the social environment in the future when we don't have people doing those kinds of jobs. The tactical transactional jobs are going to be gone. So I work in, in purchasing and I did a talk one day about a friend of mine who had this vision, and his vision was we're going to have a um, AI computer that can identify all the suppliers over the internet. That we're going to have to be able, we're going to be able to. Can, Bill, um, let me. Can you explain the type of computer? Um, I think it was an artificial yeah. intelligence that you're talking. Yeah, it's artificial intelligence computer, a learn, a learn, a machine that learns, and it will be able to identify all the suppliers. It will be able to do a request for information. It will be able to identify it and sort out and do a proposal and come back and recommend the supplier a supplier based on on its uh, its proposal. And and a, a guy named Joe Yukora said to me, "You want to see it? We have it in Stanford now. We're building it." So that when you think about the impact, impact we've got lots of people chasing things and doing things and managing things. Well, even think about the forecasting, uh, the forecasting of end product design. What you're going to see is you're going to see the Internet of Things connected in, a, in an integrated supply chain. So what we're going to see is, you know, someone will sell, GE will sell a washing machine, all those components will go down the integrated supply chain, and you'll have perfect forecasting. You won't have to guess at what the demand's going to be or where it's going to be. So those two things alone are going to take a bunch of people uh, out of our, our supply chain. And I think what, what the job becomes, it becomes really architecting the supply chain that you need for the future. It becomes really integrating those suppliers to your, uh, aligning it to your business plan, and it becomes supplier relationship management of an integrated chain. Uh, so I think, I think you, you know, when you start thinking about even, even in a, a small uh, area like purchasing and supply chain, it's going to impact the number of people that are involved. And, and I can see, as you described that, why this uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade policy is so important because all of the countries are dealing with those dynamics and they're thinking about how do we keep our people fed and working. Yeah. Yes. That, that, I, think, that I think is the disconnect um, because yeah, you, you're starting to see it. We're starting to see self-driving cars. I mean, won't, won't have taxis, taxi drivers. You're starting to see a lot of the integration coming now. Uh, we don't see it yet. It's not here yet. But that doesn't mean it's not going to be here. I never thought I'd have a watch that was acting like a phone and giving me my calendar and keeping track of my mail. I never thought that. I mean, I looked at Dick Tracy and thought that was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> now, yeah. now and, I have it. I'm and, and, now, and now their big data artificial intelligence engine is tracking every move you make. And it's yes. matching with your credit card receipts, and it knows that you had a burrito and only walked 6,000 steps one day, and now your health insurer wants to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> That's all actually happening. So, <laughs> That's absolutely right. Well, um, I'm also on a data analytics. 
uh, association where um, the, the the marketing and sales folks have the have the big data and the analytics down perfectly. The supply chain not not quite yet, but we will. So I mean, I think trade is changing. Our our view on trade has to change, and I think you know we we can't look at what we've done in the past. I think we have to look at um, the the di digital disruption that's occurring in in every industry. That is a that is fascinating, and and uh, we've been able to tie that together with our our policy. Uh, Bill, anything else that you'd like to mention about the differences between the uh, NAFTA agreement that was sunsetted and the uh, USMCA that was recently written into law? Well, I think the agriculture things are are going to be helpful. Uh, I also think that. Um, you know, having having content for automotive, so automotive. I think they've corrected a lot of things that uh, that definitely were uh, were messing up uh, trade between the between the countries. And it was interesting to to, to see that um, I think I think the trade policy is uh, is is been has been impacted because I saw a recent economic report where our exports are up, our imports are down. And then yesterday, I think I tweeted that $75 billion of U.S. imports uh, are not going to have a tariff. China's reducing, getting rid of the tariff on $75 billion worth of goods. So um, I think that, you know, there's, a, there's still a big effort to try and get free trade going. But I also think that the nations of the world are um, are really also thinking about their labor markets, their people, how they're going to manage the people. I think the last thing I'd say is yeah, they did have some some um, some some agreements in terms of um, corporate social responsibility, economics, dealing with the indigenous people in Canada that need need to work. Um, they had a whole bunch of things other than just the uh, the trade side. That is uh, very interesting. And speaking of Canada. Um, the Gordie Howe International Bridge is under construction. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with this region, uh, this bridge is going to cross the Detroit River uh, between Michigan and Canada, and 80% uh, of the trade with Canada passes through the three ports in Michigan, and most of that goes through Detroit. On the Canadian side uh, today, um, it, it takes a truck, 21 stoplights before it gets on the 401 up to Toronto, the largest city in Canada. And indeed, the uh, customs is a mile and a half from the border. Um, so this is the Canadians wanted to uh, fund this bridge uh, in order to have it connect directly to the 401 uh, and then on the U.S. side, uh, onto the freeway system in Michigan, and then out to the the two airports. Um, there's not been much talk about this, but I anticipate this is going to accelerate the trade between the United States and Canada. Um, any view on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, certainly it was it was always odd that you had an individual that owned the bridge in the process of customs and getting getting things across to Canada. You know, that was it. That was in private, private, private hands. And, um, you know, it's it, the process was slow. The trucks couldn't get through. Um, the car, cars couldn't get through. If you went through uh, one, a couple of the borders through Michigan, it, it would really be tough to get through. And I think it's going to speed up the logistics. It's going to speed up the customs and it's going to really help uh, help at least U.S. exports get out to Canada and Canadian imports come back in. So I think I think it was really, really a smart move. 
I don't think there was much of a choice. I mean, it's been talked about for about, what, eight years or nine years? And I'm really glad to see that it's happening because, again, you know, the bridge in private hands was really all about profitability. And this bridge is all about, uh, I, I would say, uh, ease of use and logistics and, and helping the supply chain improve. And, and it's a great place for a government-sponsored infrastructure project that just benefits everybody. Um, employment on both sides of the border, um, environmental support in that yep. we don't have all those trucks idling for hours uh, waiting to cross the Detroit River. Uh, yes. Bill, Bill, this has been a, a great conversation. I very much enjoy your insight and depth. Anything else that we should cover relative to uh, North American trade, or if you, if you wish, North American and European trade, anything that we just didn't cover yet? I think the only thing is we got to make sure that we're protected with IP. You know, if you have any IP, um, I think you have to be really careful about how you distribute it. Most, most companies uh, that are smart um, keep the IP, manage the IP piece here, manufacture the IP piece here, and then let the other components of whatever they're building out, outside. And I think they were trying to address some of that in the uh, in the trade agreement. But, right. Yeah. Uh, intellectual I, property, IP, intellectual property that yeah. the you know patents, copyrights, and software code and the yep. like. Everything. Yeah. Everything that's really truly a trade secret for you. Um, you know, in China, IP is just not not recognized the way it is here. So you have to be very careful about what you're exporting and what you're managing. And I think the trade agreement in uh, North America, Mexico, really uh, has taken that into account in terms of how they're going to do it. Other than that, we're, I think we're good. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Bill Michaels on the Common Bridge. Bill, real pleasure. I look forward to seeing you next time you're in the great state of Michigan. That sounds great, Rich. Look forward to it. So long now. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast. Recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.